0: Hi, my name is Wendy Weber.
1: And my name is BJ Neum.
0: Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness.
1: A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be a part of the solution.
0: In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again.
1: We work for City Relief a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness.
0: City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and healthcare. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging.
1: We both have years of experience working systematically and on the ground to end homelessness.
0: We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life, helping their neighbors in need. Today, we dive into part one of our episode with Deborah Berkman. Deborah Berkman is currently a coordinating attorney with the New York Legal Assistance Group's NYLAG's Public Benefits Unit and founded NYLAG's Shelter Advocacy Initiative, providing representation to single adults and families experiencing homelessness. Deborah advocates for single adults and families in need to be provided with habitable emergency shelter and housing subsidies, so that they may transition to permanent housing. Debra also represents these and other low-income clients in accessing public benefits, including cash, public assistance, supplemental nutritional assistance program benefits, food stamps, and Medicaid. Formerly, Debra worked in NYLEG's special litigation unit bringing class action and other impact litigation based on systemic denials of rights or benefits. Debra is also employed as an adjunct clinical law professor at Brooklyn Law School, teaching classes related to poverty, public interest, and civil rights law. Prior to these positions, Debra spent her career fighting on behalf of the disenfranchised at the New York Civil Liberties Union, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and in private practice. Debra received her undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and her JD from Fordham School of Law.
1: It is amazing to get the opportunity to ask some questions of honestly, just a good friend and somebody that I've had the privilege of working alongside with on the streets, helping people that are struggling with homelessness. Deb, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to just ask you some questions to pick your brain.
2: Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Again, it's an honor to be here with both of you and especially with BJ, who I've worked alongside for, I think, coming on two years yeah. or, yep. or a, at least a year and a half, over a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done some really good work together.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, we have,
2: and I hope we get to hit on at some point about the partnership between our agencies. Yeah, yeah, uh, that has been really helpful and yeah. transformative to a lot of people's lives.
1: One hundred percent, one hundred percent. We definitely will come there and and, and make sure we have some a conversation about that. And, but before we talk about all that, if I can just, to my knowledge, Deb is this like legendary figure that shows up on an outreach, waves her magic keyboard. (laughs) And suddenly you, you have a person living on the streets that is terrified of going into what they consider the normal shelter system, what they consider that. And suddenly they're in an SRO. Uh,
2: so they're not technically in an SRO. They are in a private room in a low barrier shelter, which is either for the safe haven or a stabilization eight, 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 eight. placement. And so it's almost like an SRO because they have their own rooms, but they don't have to pay rent.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. So even with that caveat, to have your own room when you are struggling with homelessness is huge. Right. So I would love to know not just how you achieve that, but even let's go way before that. How did you even get here? You know what I mean? Like, how did you get to where you are today doing the work that you're doing? Tell us a little about your story.
0: So
2: I am a New Yorker and I have always lived here except for when I went away to college. But I grew up in Forest Hills, Queens. And so when you grow up in New York, there's just I mean, there there's, there's very, very rich people, there's very, very poor people, there's everything, and you see everything. So I've always lived very close to extreme poverty, not in that I was impoverished, but that there were always people experiencing homelessness who lived across the street from my apartment in Queens. There were, I would always see people in parks. And so I was aware of this issue very, very early on. And I have these sort of hippie parents, and so we listened to a lot of Bob Dylan. <laughs> And we have a family band. And the very young, I was indoctrinated into sort of lefty progressive thinking and, you know, where we're supposed to help other people. And so I felt that that would be, would be part of my career goal. And I ended up wanting to become a lawyer. To be honest, my parents were lawyers, and it was a very easy choice for me. But I didn't want to do the work that they did. I really wanted to do something, some kind of public interest work where I could help people who otherwise would not have a lawyer. So... But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So when I first graduated from law school, I did a lot of civil rights work. And I worked with a lot of—I had a lot of police misconduct cases. And, you know, we sued the government quite a bit. And we did some free speech work and, you know, real constitutional violations. Wow. Um, And I worked at a firm. But when you work at a firm— you need to take people's money. And so you'll take a portion of of their winnings or you will charge them a fee. And I really hated charging a fee to my clients because it felt like just they needed that money. And I wanted to to work in, in a free legal services provider. Yeah. And so that's when I moved over to being a full public interest lawyer. I moved over to where I currently work, which is the New York Legal Assistance Group. And at that time, I did impact litigation for the systemic denial of benefits or services of right. And then I, I worked at the New York Civil Liberties Union, doing much of the same. And then after I had children, I, I realized that I really wanted to change my focus to work with individuals. I felt it would be much more fulfilling for me personally if I could work on one person's case and then at the end of the day see the difference that I had made. I will also say that impact litigation, what I used to do, is a very competitive field, and there's a lot of people who want to go into impact litigation. And while I enjoyed it, and I still do do impact litigation when a uh, systemic denial bubbles up from my client base, I not very many people want to throw themselves headfirst into direct services. And I, I really love that. That's my favorite thing. So I thought I should really be doing what needs to be done, as opposed to what like sounded cool to me. And if I really wanted to help, that's what I had to do. And so I started doing public benefits work. Mm. And so I love working and helping people with their public benefits, and, you know, working with cash public assistance and food stamps and Medicaid. And I did a lot of work with the elderly and that was very exciting. And I, particularly liked it because public benefits are very not sexy. So lawyers really don't love to work on that. And you don't have a lot of people fighting for these positions. And I really loved it. I love a food stamp budget. And I like making sure an elderly person has food to eat. That's really important to me. So one thing that the New York Legal Assistance Group or NILAG, where I work, uh, we do and is we run a help desk in the lobby of the office where people have administrative hearings, where their benefits have been either denied or reduced. So people will come in for a hearing to challenge that denial or reduction. And in my office, we took turns staffing this legal help desk. And one day I was there, and this was maybe my first or second time coming, and a family came in. And they had, you know, like three children and like two of them were being carried and one was coming along and they had all of their belongings in garbage bags. And they said, DHS, Department of Homeless Services, has found us ineligible for shelter because they say we can live with my grandmother, but she won't let us into her apartment and they won't give us another temporary placement. So where should I go?
0: This holiday season, we've set a tremendous goal of reaching 15,000 people in the New York and New Jersey area who are experiencing homelessness and extreme poverty. For $20, you can sponsor one person and give them access to a hot meal, supplies, and time with our life care counselors. To give now, click the link in the description of this podcast where should you go?
2: I mean, it, what what do you mean they won't give you a placement? And I called around and I found out that they were actually correct. And there there was a practice of if there was a certain kind of denial for shelter for people who were, for families who were presenting to the, the intake center as being homeless. And if they were denied, then they weren't given an emergency placement and these families had to stay on the street. And that was, the beginning of my dedicated homeless rights work, because I, I couldn't stand that. And at the time, I only had two children. I now have three children. But I know that my children, they really have everything they need. They have medical insurance and they go to ballet class and they, you know, they just, it's in stark contrast when I see people who are handing me their children to hold because they've been holding them for so long and they're so exhausted. And I have to send them to sleep in certain hospital emergency rooms. So I kept doing the legal help desk, doing my shift, and I would meet more and more families like this. And there were very, very few legal services providers who would take on these hearings. And even when you have the hearing, the family wasn't housed between the time they were denied and the time that if they won the hearing. So I had to figure out what to do with these families in between. And so I started sending families to emergency rooms and to all-night fast food restaurants and to, to other places that I felt that they would be safe. But that was the beginning. And I realized this is an area that not enough people are working on and that is causing children to have to sleep on the street. And, and this is something that I need to devote myself to.
1: Wow.
2: And I have to say that NILAG, I was very lucky that I was working at NILAG at the time because they really encouraged this work. And, you know, NYLEG specializes in serving low-income New Yorkers, and arguably, these are the lowest-income New Yorkers and the people who most need our help. And so NYLEG also recognized that there was a need and, and that I needed to help these families. So did anything change about people needing to sleep on the street when COVID hit? So this is a really important point. Thank you so much for asking. What happened is during COVID, the Department of Homeless Services put in place an emergency policy allowing anyone who is found ineligible for shelter for any reason, any family, to reapply from within shelter. So they wouldn't be kicked out of the shelter while they were reapplying, and they would be given another emergency placement. So right now, technically, there shouldn't be any families sleeping on the street. But the concern that we're having, and why I'm still working on this issue very frequently, is that Department of Homeless Services says this, this was only an emergency measure and they're going to discontinue this practice. And I know because I had so many families who had to spend one or not more evenings outside with their babies. I know that as soon as this policy ends, families will be back on the street. And that's what's scary. So we really are still working on that issue. Wow. And that was really my start to working with homeless families and from there I've just really been able to immerse myself in advocating for all people experiencing homelessness, and especially people experiencing street homelessness that I meet through City Relief.
0: So I, we're, we're hearing an example of a barrier to, to even finding shelter for a family with babies. You're also talking about systemic problems. So what are some other things? Like, uh, w- no, we, m- most of us maybe have no idea that that could happen to a family because there's this technicality that maybe there's a family member who might take them in and that family member won't. And so this leads into the street. So what are some other examples of things we would never even think of that could, that could end up in this situation that should never happen of a family being on the street? Like what other barriers are there for anyone experiencing homelessness to, to gain housing? So the, the barriers are different for families and
2: for single adults. And for families, it's really the eligibility system as a whole. The way that a family has to prove eligibility can take months and months and months. I have families who are found serially ineligible for six months or more, and they have to reapply every 10 days. So, as part of the reapplication process, they have to entirely fill out a new application. Their their housing history has to be what they call verified. And if a third party doesn't pick up the phone, to verify every single place a family has lived for the last two years, then they'll be found ineligible for shelter. So right now, that's not as difficult. That, that's not as tragic, I should say, because being found ineligible for shelter doesn't mean that you're physically kicked out of shelter during COVID for now. But it does effectively trap the family in shelter because really the only way to get out of shelter and to transition to permanent housing for most families and for most single adults is to get a voucher, yeah. but if you're not eligible for shelter, then you're not eligible for the for the housing vouchers and the housing assista- assistance that come with being
0: eligible for shelter. So it's hard to transition out. So tell us what that means that from shelter to permanent housing, you need a voucher. What what we well, don't necessarily need a voucher, but but what is what is the voucher system? What is what is that? How does so, that work?
2: A, a voucher. What I'm shorthanding as a voucher is a rental subsidy. Okay. So it's uh, you might have heard of Section Eight. Yes, sure. and very common in the city right now is something called city FEPs,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's another they pay a, the city will pay a portion of people's rent for a certain period of time if they meet certain requirements, And but most of the people, once a person is experiencing homelessness, the way that they are going to become eligible for that voucher is by being found eligible for Department of Homeless Services
1: mm-hmm. housing yeah. or shelter. Yeah.
2: So it's if someone can ever be found eligible for shelter, then it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for them to transition out of shelter and into permanent housing. And shelter should only be a very short pit stop on the way to permanent housing. Yeah,
1: but we're talking occurs. about people that are, as you said, getting trapped in the system and they can't, they they're just stuck right there. So they can't even try to move on from, so there's. Being actually being in the situation when you're when you where you're homeless, the shelter is supposed to, like you said, be a pit stop, right? And then you're supposed to be able to move on to this place of having your own. Yeah, having your own permanent housing. And from what you're telling us, people are literally getting trapped in the shelter system, like right in the middle, because of some barriers um because somebody won't pick up a phone.
2: Right, because of administrative burdens that they have no control over. Well, they cannot control if a non-related third party or a non-legally responsible third party will allow the family to live there. Wow. Well, they can't control that. They can't control if someone picks up the phone. They can't control if a third par- party cooperates with the investigation. This is all out of the homeless family's control. And- so yes, being found ineligible is still devastating, although I do have to say was and will be even more devastating if families actually have to sleep outside. Yes,
1: yeah, right. So the this problem has been alleviated slightly because being trapped in shelter is better than being trapped on the street. Yeah, yeah. and so the problem has been alleviated a little bit as of now, but even that is temporary.
2: So yes, and particularly when there's children involved though, it is vital that families not sleep outside mm. because then they'll they'll catch they call it catching an ACS case. ACS is the administration for children's services. So while it, it's it's not a crime to to not have money and to be low income, once ACS is involved with a the family, there there will be other other issues that come up. Once ACS is involved with a family, most often ACS will find a reason to remain involved with the family, and it really puts the family in danger. Wow! And talk more about that. What? what well, if you had hours to speak, I would tell you all about how the the shelter placement system also creates necessary interaction with ACS because families are not necessarily placed near where their children go to school. And there's an attempt to place the family near where the smallest child goes to school. That sometimes happens and sometimes does not. Um, Because the, the amount of availability in the family shelter system is so low. So, it, it, it takes a little while for Department of Education school buses to be rerouted to the correct spot. So if a homeless family is placed far from where their children go to school, and often, I mean, my three children go to three different schools. So often, you know, they'll be near one school and you won't be near two other schools. And if the bus doesn't start immediately taking the children to their correct school, children are going to very often be very late or may not even make it to school. And there, there's something called a Educational neglect and if parents can get an ACS case can be investigated by ACS because they're purportedly neglecting their children's education by not taking them to school or to, for getting them to school late repeatedly. But often this is completely out of their control.
1: Yes. And also, if you're in a situation like this where you know you are struggling with homelessness, a lot of the appointments and things like that that you have to do that are also during the day, Right. And and some of those things like forget an appointment, like if you're going to the Human Resource Administration, you're in a line and you kind of need to be there as early as possible if you want to be able to get in and out in any sort of like, you know, within the next four hours. Like it's, it's so it, it's incredible because now we're talking about ACS coming in and like the potentiality of someone losing like uh, losing their their children,
2: absolutely. And that happens, wow. And that happens to my clients, Wow. oh my gosh. I can talk about this all day. and it's not even. And when we talk about when we talk about the appointments at HRA and just the effort that is involved in keeping up with public benefits, and in New York City, shelter is considered a public benefit because it's run through the cash through the public assistance scheme. Mm-hmm. There are many appointments, and there are many. It's called administrative burden, basically.
0: This podcast is sponsored by City Relief. We are a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive.
1: We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten.
0: We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you, we want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode.
2: It's either intentionally or unintentionally creates a system where it is so, it, it it may even be easier to work and find a job than to keep your public benefits. And this because the system makes it so difficult. I mean some people can, some people can't. But keeping up people's public benefits is is an entire job in itself. It and Going to HRA centers, a lot of my clients don't need to go to HRA centers anymore because there's been a certain amount of automation, but that has actually made the centers themselves less able to deal with people's cases. And it, it's created its own crowding in centers because there are less centers and, and they can't people's issues aren't dealt with as much on the spot. But yes, you can wait for hours in HRA centers. I actually have had to go to HRA centers myself. I mean, I work with public benefits. I work with HRA. This is my love. I love doing this. But a lot of what I do is I help people get what's called one-shot deals for storage. And a lot of my City Relief clients need those services. Yeah. So if a client is living outside on the street or a client is living in a Department of Homeless Services shelter and they're on public assistance, um, or to a certain extent, if they're on SSI, they are eligible to have HRA pay for their storage. But notoriously, there are issues having people's storage paid on time. and Storage companies will auction off a client's belongings if, if a check is more than a certain number of days late. So I've had the experience on several occasions of having to go into the center and, you know, I'm in a very unique position. I've probably been communicating with someone very high up at the center who says, come in and you'll just be able to come in and do this. Yeah. And I walk into the center and it, it's just be prepared to wait. Really? And and I'll be telling people, oh, no, this person said I should come in. And they're like, and everybody else who's waiting in line is like, sit down. We we got a seat for you. Like, don't worry, you're going to be here for five hours. (laughs) And it's just, and, you know, they're not wrong. Yeah. But um, that was more before the pandemic. But it's still very difficult to deal with appointments. And yes, so if a family has appointments during the day, they may not be able to send their children to school because there's no telling if they will be
0: back in time to pick them up from school. Yeah. Or to meet their. Which will also be a problem. Seen as a problem of neglect mm-hmm. if they aren't there to pick up their children or yeah. to be
1: home with their children. right? And this is what we talk about when we're when we're talking about a systemic issue right? or systemic problems like you've got all of these different parts of the system that you're mentioning and that you're highlighting of ACS's involvement and. You know what I mean? Where the schools are, and the time it takes for the buses to reroute to pick the kids up when they get placed in the shelter, and then God forbid, while they're in the shelter, a relative doesn't pick up the phone, and now they're ineligible, and now they're back on the street. It's like this is
2: describing my life. Wow! I I, I talk about this all day, every day. Wow!
1: Wow! I I am I've been working with homelessness professionally for probably about six or seven years now. And, and and during that time, I've come in contact with a lot of systemic issues. I've never had anybody paint that picture so clearly like you just painted it. That was a, just, I really do appreciate your expertise. And as Wendy stated earlier, actually, even before, just Your subject matter expertise is inspiring and absolutely like going to be a blessing for anybody that really wants to do more. So now with that in mind, what do you think are some ways that people can educate themselves in order to combat the injustices? You know, if somebody wanted to get in on this fight, right, that you are fighting right now, or if somebody wanted to make a difference, like how could they even... Because I'm imagining that th- this is what I've been doing for years now, but and this is what you've been doing, and this is what Wendy's been doing. We've all been in this fight in one way or another for quite some time now, right? But if somebody's hearing what you just said, what would you tell them on how they can get started and get involved?
0: If you live in New York or New Jersey or technically anywhere and you'd like to volunteer with us, click on the link in the description of this episode.
2: So, how they can get involved in this particular fight on family shelter eligibility. Can I say this is sort of a very technical issue? Yeah. It's a very technical fight. Yes. What I think people really need to do, and what I think would be actually even more effective in helping our friends who are experiencing street homelessness, who are single adults, is to come and meet our clients. Because I have to say, I think that the first barrier to most people who don't work with people experiencing homelessness is the othering of people experiencing homelessness. So for instance, I'm a lawyer and it it is the tradition of lawyers that we have legal interns every summer. And those are kids who are in law school. They're not kids. Those are adults who are in law school who are sometimes much younger than me. And they are just getting started in their career. And part of what I do with these young adults in law school who are very well-meaning people but have never worked with people experiencing homelessness is that I take them out to do intake with me and to meet my client. And overwhelmingly, what they tell me at the end of the summer is that this experience was so life-changing for them because it changed the way they thought from people being homeless people to people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. So they really saw their humanity first. Wow. So, And I was just having this conversation with my summer intern from this summer, and she said to me, you know, they try so hard, and they work so hard, and it's not their fault. And I'm like, that's true. That's correct. I'm like, the system is set up against them. So, so many of our clients have jobs. So many of our clients have untreated mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the system is just set up in such a way that they will never be able, without some help, to get through it. So how can people help? First, I think that people need to call on their city government to change some of the policies of Department of Homeless Services that actually keep people on the street. So I've already explained a little bit of, about family shelter eligibility. And it, when you see couples sleeping on the street, I mean, a lot of the reason for that is because of the family shelter eligibility scheme. So it's very hard for them to be found eligible for shelter. Mm. So that's couple. But when you see single adults sleeping on the, on the street, there are a number of issues. First of all, I want to note that a lot of people who are sleeping outside, it's not that they choose to sleep on the street. It's not that they're so-called service
1: resistant. Sure.
2: What it is, is that they have been in a Department of Homeless Shelter, single adult shelter, that is a congregate system. So there'll be 50 people in a room. And they have had some kind of trauma in that space that has occurred. So a lot of my clients have either been physically or sexually assaulted in that space. They have developed PTSD. They cannot go back into congregate shelter.
1: Hey, you.
0: Yes, you, listener.
1: Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money?
0: Or do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help.
1: Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy-to-use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.